0: family, the Bible teaches us that to magnify Christ is to celebrate His death and resurrection. As you prepare with me this morning by removing your elements from what you received, I remind you of the background of the history of that moment. It was the evening of Jesus' arrest. He had long since desired to enjoy the table with His disciples. They were all Jewish. They would have celebrated the Passover their entire life, as did generation upon generation before them. And when they celebrated the Passover, they would have remembered what God did to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery. And the Scripture teaches us that that Passover was a foreshadowing of a better Passover. It's what you saw over the last month as you walked through the book of Genesis. In every account, you saw the connection between that account and what Christ was coming to do. The Bible says on that evening, he told them, I've been longing to have this meal with you. And he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. As often as you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. Scripture says, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is representing the covenant of the new blood that I'm giving, a new covenant of grace and forgiveness, the blood shed for your sins. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. You may be seated. Let's sing this chorus together, everyone. Grace. Time. Would you sing it all together? All across the room. Come on. bow with me. Father, thank you for that grace, that grace in our lives that is greater than all of our sin. As I prepare to begin another semester in your word today, I'm honored with the grace to preach. Not to the end that our church or any leader would be magnified or elevated, but to the end that every believer in this room would believe upon you more when they leave this place. And every person in this room who knows not a personal relationship with you would recognize that your grace is deeper and stronger than any wedge of division they may feel holding them back from surrendering to you. Finally, dear Lord, as we begin a very difficult and serious look at a subject that is dark, that is deep, and that is at times hard to explore, I stand in need of your grace. Grace that wants to edify your church, that we may be a reflection of, of the bridegroom that we may be a pure and holy people because we have a pure and holy God and that when we fail and stumble in our walk that we may run quickly to you and claim that blessed grace 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 that is greater than all our sin And God's people said, Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians. For those of you who are guests of ours this morning, perhaps you visited over July and are here today, and I've never had the privilege of sharing with you from God's Word, I often remind this precious group of people that it is the privilege of my life to be able to stand before you most Sundays of the year and to spend time in God's Word. And I say this so often that most of the regular attenders and members can repeat it when I begin to say it. The power in preaching is not the podium, the platform, the pulpit, the position, or the pastor. And that's a lot of P's. The power in anointed preaching is the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God. And at Church at the Mill, we believe it's all that and more. I believe it from cover to cover, and I might argue with you that the maps are inspired. The reality is, the role of preaching is not for one individual who might communicate clearly to share his wisdom on how you should live your life. Friend, I want you to know, I'm still very much in need of God's grace to live my life. Just as you, I am a sinner. And like you, I face many things I don't understand, and I encounter and navigate situations where I am totally dependent on God's grace. So, the power in preaching, the power in the pulpit, is not that the preacher is the source of wisdom and grace and truth, he's a vehicle. The source is the word. And therefore, the most faithful way to feed the church anointed preaching is to feed the church the Word. And so what we do is we take books of the Bible almost all the time, and even when we do series that may be more topical, every sermon will be buried inside a text of Scripture. And for those of you who are new to Church at the meal, we began the book of 1 Corinthians after we spent the better part of COVID in the book of Jeremiah, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we've walked our way through verse Corinthians, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and chapter four. If you're ever interested in catching up, all of those sermons live forever on multiple platforms through the gift of media, whether it be Vimeo, YouTube, our website, social media. You can always go back and catch up or podcast them on the way to work or home. This morning though, I began in chapter five and chapter six, a new series. A series that will take us deep into September. A series simply entitled, Do You Not Know? Paul uses this phrase seven times in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of the book of 1 Corinthians. Seven times he writes from a place of great concern, urgency, and if I'm being honest with you, from a place of frustration, Do you not know? Let me try to translate this so that every parent in the room can relate. When you are a child, you receive these words. Did I not tell you? Does anybody remember that? And I remember struggling with that until I became a parent. And now I'm good at it. Did I not tell you? And sometimes I'll be a a little cute. Do you understand the words coming out of my mouth? Could I not have made myself more clear? I may have even said, son, do we need to buy a dry erase board? And let me just list to you what I said. And then by God's grace, he created an iPhone. And now they get detailed text. This is what's expected of you this week before I get home. I have it in print. I have it digitized. I can text it, post it. I can print it, cut it out, and post it on the refrigerator, which was the social media of my childhood. And therefore, when a command is given and disobedience occurs, one of the things that happens in the punitive action of discipline is we go over what did not take place on a more serious note if you've ever managed people if you've ever coached players if you've ever taught kids you know that one of the things that makes great leaders great great managers great great coaches great is that they make the expectations clear give people the opportunity to rise to the occasion by not dealing in nuance or subtlety explain to them exactly what what is expected of them. And whether or not they appreciate it in the moment, down the road, if they embrace the clear expectations, they will appreciate the fact that you were clear with them. I have the privilege of talking with many church members who are struggling with a particular job or a career change. Never, ever does it fail. I always say, well, do you enjoy the people you work for? Do you enjoy your boss? No one ever always agrees with their boss. But by and large, the people that tell me they respect the man or the woman they work for always say, I respect her, I respect him because they clearly communicate to me what they expect of me. That's all we want. That's a fair share. And the good news is, humanity did not create that. God did. What I just told you a few moments ago about the importance of the Bible being central in preaching is because God has clearly communicated Our God is not silent. He has been very clear about the most wonderful, warm, and uplifting topics of his grace. But to be honest with you, church family, he's also crystal clear about some of the most damaging and difficult subjects we will ever have to deal with. And that's the subject of chapter 5 and chapter 6. See, this is not a series on sex. This is not even a series on sexual sin and scandal. This is a series on sexual sin and scandal in the church. It's a series that needs to be preached. It's a text that needs to be understood. It's a subject that literally touches us all, and I'll prove that to you in just a few moments with some amazing difficult and sad statistics. If I'm going to be truthful to God's Word, I have to match the text in tone as well. I want you to know that the Apostle Paul is good at celebrating. He's good at commemorating. He's good at rejoicing. We're going to see that through this journey. But he's also honest and open when the church should be hurting over a matter, when the church should be mourning and the church should be grieving. And to be honest with you, to preach this message and to leave out the main emotion would be, in essence, disloyal to the text. The text is very sad, remorseful, and stern. And so I want to preach to you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, excuse me, 5, verses 1 through 5, on a message simply entitled, The Sad Truth. Some truths are good, but some truths are sad. Truth's truth, no matter how you feel about it. Our culture's wrong. There's not your truth or my truth. Truth doesn't move. It's set in stone, fixed by God. So some truth is worth celebrating, worth rejoicing over. But other truth is sad. Whether you're watching from your device or your home smart TV or you're sitting here with me, this is a sad truth, but there is redemption in the end of it. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed From among you, verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit, notice lowercase, Paul's talking about his apostolic presence through his teaching, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. One of the most rewarding truths I tell young pastors is that I'm living proof if you'll just preach God's word, he'll do something amazing in your church. But that doesn't mean it's always easy. I have to tell you that after a month of praying and writing, I just completed another book that you'll enjoy next year. After doing that and after having my tank refilled, I want to come in this morning and just throw my arms up and just bear hug you. I want to pick a text and just love on you. And about two weeks ago when I opened up and read the text, I go, oh, thanks, Lord. (laughs) Nothing like saying, thanks for the sabbatical. Let's talk about incest. The reality, though, is that this is a sad truth. It's a sad truth that the church ought to hear. I don't preach this morning in reaction to the state of church at the mill. I stand before you this morning recognizing that I don't know of a time where this is more discussed than it is today. In fact, the passage really breaks down into three parts. The first one is the sad reality of sexual sin in the church. Paul's not going on rumor. This isn't his inclination, he says in verse 1, it is actually reported. So he's received word. He's not in Corinth. He's received word that this is taking place. And when he received the word, notice he's not addressing the people who are guilty of this sin. He's addressing the church. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, if the sentence stopped there, that would be sad. We all know that sexual immorality exists because sexual sin exists. Why does sexual sin exist? Well, it's very simple, and it goes all the way back to the last sermon I preached to you at the beginning of July. At the fall, every aspect of our lives were invaded and corrupted by sin. And God has made us physical, God has made us emotional. God has made us spiritual. God has made us social. We are designed for relationship. And God, in his grace, has made us sexual. Sex, as any basic Bible student will know, is a tremendously powerful, wonderful gift from God given to humanity for three primary reasons. God gave us sex as a gift between a man and a woman in marriage for pleasure, He gave us sex as a gift between a man and a woman in marriage for protection. If we fulfill one another's sexual needs, we are less likely to sin sexually outside of our covenant. And most assuredly, by proof of the children's wing this morning, God gave us the gift of sex between a man and a woman in marriage for procreation, pleasure, protection, and procreation. And so the discussion of sex in the church should always be in light of a sound theology that it is a gift from God given to man and woman to enjoy in marriage. But like every other gift, the gift of the earth, the gift of work, the gift of relationship, the gift of marriage, the gift of parenting, the gift of children, the gift of purpose, every other gift given by God was corrupted and tainted by sin. And therefore, just as I am spiritual so I can sin spiritually, and just as I am physical so I can sin physically, and just as I am emotional so I can sin emotionally, and just as I am social so I can sin socially, as I am sexual, I certainly can know the temptation of or give into sexual sin. This is not foreign to anybody in the room. If I were to say to you, everyone in the room has been tempted to become a drug addict, that would not be true. Some have. We have recovering people who have a history of addiction in their life. I'm sure there are people listening to me preach today who are currently dealing with an addiction to some substance abuse, but there are those among you who have never been tempted or pulled toward substance abuse. If I were to say everybody in the room, is tempted to fall into sin of uncontrolled bouts of anger, that would not be true. Some of you do struggle with being hotheads, and you've had an anger issue since you were born. Others of you are laid back and fairly placid, and it takes a lot to get you angry. And so struggling with the sin of angry outbursts is not something you deal with. My point, all of us deal with different sin weaknesses, but none of us are immune from sexual sin Because all of us are given by God sexual desires that he designed to be expressed inside of the covenant marriage of one man and one woman. So if you get a bunch of sinners together who are following Jesus, you're going to deal with the struggle of sexual sin in the church. But then Paul goes on to add another phrase. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Now, what's he talking about? He gives it to us in the next phrase. Look what the Bible says. For a man has his father's wife. Now, this is, most scholars believe and I affirm, an example of a man having an adulterous affair with his stepmother. In the Bible, mother and father's wife usually are the distinction. Some of you know your father, to be married to your mother, or at least they were married until the Lord called them home. But others of you know that your father may have lost his wife, your mother, to death, that marriage may have been destroyed by divorce, he may have remarried, and therefore, as a child or as an adult, you may have welcomed into your life a stepmother." And she is your stepmother. Now, sometimes in the case of a very young man with young children who remarries after death or divorce and has custody of his children and the mother is not in the picture, that stepmother will become mama and she'll be known as mama their entire life. But most people who have a healthy relationship with their birth mother would not identify another woman in that office. She would be a stepmother. Now, she wouldn't be called stepmother, not if you don't want to make her mad, but she would be affectionately referred to by another term to distinguish her. And so most scholars believe because the word mother is not used, this is a reference to a man who has had an adulterous affair with his stepmother. Now, in the first century, it was very common for an older man who lost his wife to marry a younger woman. A much younger woman. So you can see how an older man with older sons might marry a woman who his sons found attractive. Now, we don't know the details, and honestly, that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is this affair has happened, and the tense in the original language carries the idea of ongoing. In other words, this is not a one-time incident, as sad and as sick as that may be. This is an ongoing adulterous affair a relationship between a man and most likely his stepmother. Now again, it's not the church as a whole's fault that an individual has done this. But the church is responsible as to how they act in response to these actions. i thought about this a lot as I prepared to preach to you this message. I can honestly say that in my childhood into my boyhood, if you were to ask me about sexual scandal in the church, I would have thought about things distant and salacious. I, I was a boy of the 80s, born in 77, so I did my growing up in the 80s. Our music was terrible. Uh, used from the 70s or 60s, have much better music than us. But we did have some cool stuff going on in the 80s, you know, Back to the Future and that kind of stuff. I was a child of the 80s, and I remember as a boy knowing it was a big deal when Jimmy Swaggart got on his nationally televised program and cried and confessed his sins. And I remember that those televangelists like him corrupt in their faith, were made fun of. They were the butt of the jokes of real and true Christians. But the interesting thing about that is that's easy to deal with. That's somewhere else. He's somewhere down in Louisiana. He's, he's not really a part of my circle. He's one of those evil televangelists who all they want is grandmother's money to buy their next Rolls Royce, and he can have this stuff. Surely this wouldn't take place in my church. And then I grew up. And then 2019 happened and the Houston Chronicle released a bombshell of an article examining specifically sexual abuse, sexual sin, sexual immorality among leaders in Southern Baptist churches. Some 380 cases were researched. And then... When that bombshell report here in 2019, I was in the room in the National Southern Baptist Convention in 2021 in Nashville, where the floor voted overwhelmingly, it was far too many people to tell you it was unanimous, I don't know, but overwhelmingly to launch an intense investigation into any mishandling of sexual abuse or sexual scandal among the upper echelon of Southern Baptist structure. And there was created the Sexual Abuse Task Force of the Southern Baptist Convention. The struggle within our denomination is not that we're immune from sexual sin, and not that in any way should we be held accountable. It's that our belief theologically is in the free church. We are an autonomous denomination. What that means is is that we are a bunch of churches who freely choose to cooperate. We don't have structured authority over the local church. The beautiful facility that you're setting in. When the men and women who made the decisions about this building were meeting, while we consulted experts, we never had to ask a parish or a local presbyter or some council's permission to do this. This building, this property, this church, our leaders are paid for and financed and funded by our members. We freely cooperate with other churches, but we believe that every local church should follow the Word of God and the Spirit of God and should be free to do so. So we don't have a church structure, it's called church polity, we don't have a church structure that places authority over church at the meal, and neither do many evangelical churches. And so the question is, how responsible is our church of some scandal in a Southern Baptist church in Iowa, in Myrtle Beach, in Missouri? And this is the issue we began wrestling with in the back rooms of the denominational leadership that I am a part of. And this task force was given free reign to go look into anything and everything. And I didn't say anything to you up until this morning, and if you're a guest of ours, we talk very little here about denominational activity, but you cannot ignore the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is that we knew this task force would produce a report. They did produce a report. It was released in late May, early June of this summer, and it was difficult to read. And what we found is that almost all cases in local communities had been reported to authorities, and many, many perpetrators had been uh, prosecuted. But the communication between churches and state conventions broke down so that someone might be found guilty or might be accused of something and disappear only to emerge three states over and begin to position themselves to receive another pastoral job. And so last November at the South Carolina Baptist Convention, I wrote and stood before our messengers with this motion. It's a motion that reads this. In an effort to proactively position our church's institutions and convention as a whole to advocate for the survivors of sexual abuse and aggressively address any way forward to oppose this tragedy and handle allegations appropriately and justly, I move that we authorize our convention president to name a task force to respond to the recommendations made at the Baptist Convention in Anaheim in June regarding sexual abuse, and to report to that executive board to our convention during our annual meeting in November of 2022. It passed overwhelmingly, and a few months later, our convention president, who is Wayne Bray, the pastor of First Baptist Simpsonville, called and said, DJ, I need you to chair this task force. I said, I did not make the motion in order to be involved. I just felt like we needed to do something as a state. We are a Bell Cow Convention. The South Carolina Baptist Convention is older than the Southern Baptist Convention. In other words, our state convention existed before a national organization existed. The first Southern Baptist church in the world is pastored by a friend of mine at First Baptist Charleston, South Carolina. It is the first Southern Baptist church in the world. It's the oldest one. I always joke with him and he's got a few charter members on the back. But it's the oldest one. And so I agreed after much prayer over Christmas to chair this task force. I'm working on it right now with a group of incredible men and women. We have survivors of sexual abuse. We have attorneys. We have other pastors. And in November, I will deliver a report to our state convention. And here's the reason why. In the general population, not just among church folk, one in four women have experienced some form of sexual abuse or harassment by their early 20s. If I had all of the precious ladies in this room stand up, 25% of you would say, yes, I've been inappropriately touched. I've been abused. I've been harassed. And some of you may have even more difficult things to say have been a part of your life. Some of you have dealt with it. Others of you may have never told a soul. This blew my mind as I began researching this subject because it is a subject foreign to me. I've never known a day of abuse. I've never known a day of harassment. I I, I, I haven't. I've had men, specifically women close to me who have. And as I've become somewhat of a point person in their state, I cannot tell you the stories that women have come to me and shared that have broken my heart. But one in six men in the general population will be or have been sexually abused or harassed in some form or fashion by the time they reach their early 20s. In most cases, for obvious reasons, it happens among boys. Now, I don't say that to you in reaction or worry because I can tell you that the vast majority of people I met in my life in the church love the Lord Jesus and would never do anything other than help and encourage the vulnerable among us. But there is a vulnerable population among us. Our ladies, our girls, our boys, and those with special needs statistically are the most vulnerable to be victimized by predators who ought to be thrown out of the church. And in my understanding of God's word, there is grace and forgiveness available for any person, no matter the depth and the darkness of their sin but grace doesn't mean you get a free pass or you don't pay the piper of justice and you don't deal with the consequences of your decision and grace also doesn't mean that a shepherd shouldn't protect his flock and when we and what and what we as a church have to do is we have to not buy into the arrogance of Corinth and believe that won't happen here believe that's never going to happen to us. It's why you get a sticker when you check your children in. It's why we have big policemen standing at the entrances. It's why I've given them clear direction. In any situation that a child is hurt or damaged, you do whatever you need to do according to the law. It, it, It is exactly why when you can't find your sticker, you might have to go through a few steps to get to your kid. It's why we don't allow men to change diapers on the hallway, although you should at home, guys. Don't use that. (laughs) It's why there's always more than one adult in the room. It's why right now you're on camera, and you've been on camera since you stepped out of your car. It's not because of you or for me in many cases. It's to tell predators, you're not welcome here, and you don't want to deal with us if you hurt one of our little ones. And what I would say to you and to me is that we have an opportunity. This is our moment. The world is watching. 93% of men arrested and convicted of sexual assault claim to be religious. 93%. This is exactly what Paul is saying when he's saying, I'm hearing reports of stuff going on in the church that even the pagans would not put up with. In fact, when we begin to think about the sad reality, what breaks Paul's heart is the sad reaction. Look look at verse 2. And you are arrogant. Now, he's not talking to the guy who's sleeping with his stepmother. He's talking to the church. He's saying, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather mourn? I don't know if you remember, but one of the subjects in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 is spiritual arrogance. This is the first place we get into the sinister sexual sin and scandal. But at this point, we begin to see what arrogance does. See, the moment we begin to grow an air about us, even if it has nothing to do with physical sin or sexual sin, the moment we begin to think that we somehow are above falling, that we somehow are above giving in to temptation, that we somehow are above having to worry about the problems of the world, we open our hearts up to the stuff that right now appears to be twisted and dark and foreign, but all of a sudden it comes home to roost in our lives. This is what the half-brother Jesus said, the book of James. James said this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, notice they start first, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So it's not just an act of giving in to some sinful sexual urge that leads to sexual sin. Two steps behind that, it's saying, this person exists for my pleasure. Two steps behind that, it's saying, my pleasure's what really matters. And two steps behind that, it's saying, God, you don't give me enough pleasure. The root of all sexual sin, whether you're living with the woman you're dating and you're not married, or you go all the way to the end of the spectrum of the sickness we see in pedophilia, the root of all sexual sin is pride. In that moment, in that relationship, you're saying, God, your will's not enough for me. I need to go please myself. And this is what's happening in Corinth. And Paul says, it's not that you've just tolerated it. Shouldn't you be mourning? Notice anger's not come out yet. Firmness has not come out yet. He's saying, shouldn't this break your heart? What does the Bible say happens when we sin and we don't mourn? Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians when he talks about the relationship of God to sin. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So Paul's saying, when we don't mourn over our sin, God does. When I mourn, God forgives. When I hide, God mourns. His holiness demands a holy response. And what we should recognize is that we don't get to stick our head in the sand. We don't get to say, well, we're a big mega church now. We're a big box church. There's all kinds of people in all kinds of places. And you surely, you can't manage all this. I'm not responsible for what I don't know. But when I know something, it should break my heart. And we should mourn over the sin of others, and the sins of our lives. It's never okay when you talk to survivors of sexual abuse, when you talk to survivors of sexual sin. And by the way, that's how they like to be referred to, not victims, survivors. When you talk to them, one of the things that they will often say, especially among a population that fails to report most incidents, is they say, I wasn't sure anybody would listen to me or my voice was not valued. Now, the reality is anybody can make a false accusation. I have people in my life who have been the victims of false accusations, but their integrity and the policies they operated by and the wisdom of men or women around them protected them in that moment. So we should provide justice for anyone in any part of the equation of sexual sin. But in most cases... Most sexual sin survivors will tell you I never reported because I knew I would not be taken seriously or I wasn't sure my voice carried the weight and the value of those in leadership. May it not be that we as a people ever grow so arrogant so that one of our precious little girls or a precious little boy or a woman of age can't come to godly men and women and say, I have been mistreated, and I want help, and I want protection. And that starts not with a police-like mentality, not a cynical mentality, not a look over your shoulder and expect everyone to fail you mentality. It starts with a tenderness toward God and His Word, in essence, saying what Paul says, should you not mourn when you hear of something like this taking place? which leads finally to the serious response to sexual sin in the church. Paul goes from verses 1 and verses 2 into the call of the church to practice church discipline. Look what the Bible says. It really starts at the second phrase of verse 2. And you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, Paul here is not referencing some Old Testament application that's no longer applicable under the law. He's not saying, take the perpetrator, the adulterer, the sinful, out in the street and stone them to death. The Old Testament would demand that. Do you know why we don't stone adulterers today? Because Jesus went to the cross for them. It's the reason why there is no death penalty that the church exercises today. All our sin killed Christ, and he died fulfilling the law. Now, if someone refuses that death, they'll face the Lord, and facing him unforgiven is far worse than a thousand stones thrown by an angry mob. But what Paul is saying is they can't remain in fellowship and good standing with the church if they're continually living in unrepentant, rebellious sin. Now, verses 3, 4, and 5 are not to the detail that, for example, Matthew 18 is. But in verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul tells him what should take place. For though absent in the body, Paul's like saying, I'm not there, but I'm there. I'm not there in person, but I'm there in principle. I understand that when you receive a command on the battlefield, and it has your commanding officer's name on it, you're to treat that command as if you heard it directly from his lips. Paul here is giving a command. He's saying, for though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. There's some elements that begin to surface in church discipline. One is righteous resolve. There's no wishy-washiness in this. Today is not the day to unpack church discipline as a whole, but let me explain to you. Church discipline is not for people who sin. All of us have sinned this week. Every one of you come today in need of God's grace. You woke up this morning in need of his mercy. Church discipline is not for someone struggling with sin. It's not for someone that's saying, I'm struggling with this sin. I need help. I want repentance. That's not a church discipline issue. That's a love your brother, sister issue. Church discipline is in those terribly, we hope, rare examples of a member a professing believer in Christ, who is a covenant member of the fellowship, choosing to outwardly and openly live a lifestyle that directly contradicts God's Word and continues in that sin with no sign of remorse and repentance. When you deal with that, you better have some starch in your breeches. You need righteous resolve. And this is what Paul says, I've already made the decision. There's no wish You can't justify Don't tell me, well, I love her or she makes me happy or I've been burned in so many other relationships and we prayed about it. Hogwash, it's against God's word. Don't do it. Righteous resolve. But then that righteous resolve has to be practiced with righteous representation. Nobody is appointed by God to run around and be the hammer and the nail of judging people. It never was supposed to be that way. In rare incidents where we at Church of the Mill have to deal with a church member who is in repeated, unrepentant sin, we never handle that privately, secretly, or alone. A group of godly men navigate those decisions, and this is what he says here. He says in verse 3, For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, he doesn't tell one individual to do it, when the church is assembled, In the name of the Lord Jesus. So notice this is something that God has to be a part of. That reminds me of Matthew 18. You listen, I'll read it very quick. If your brother sins against you, Matthew 18, verse 15, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Church discipline's not about embarrassing someone or alienating someone. Go to them. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established. By the evidence of two or three witnesses, go with a smaller group. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. Those are two ways Jesus said, let him be as one who is not a church member anymore. You've done everything you can. So righteous representation, the Lord, the leaders, the clear teaching of God's word leads to practice of redemption, redemptive removal. Look how it ends in verse 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with power in our Lord Jesus, you are delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you're new to the Bible, you go, where's that closet? (laughs) How do we deliver someone to Satan? What's that look like? Notice what Paul says. This is where redemption comes. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline is not punishment. Listen to me. You discipline your children. Your discipline may look like punishment, but it's not eternal punishment. And here's why. Your child lies to you. You may choose to discipline them harshly. Is it because you want them to wear the label of liar and be cast out of your presence forever? No. You know that if they'll lie to you, they'll lie to their friends. If they lie to their friends, they'll lie to their teacher. And you know that one little lie can be dealt with. But a pattern of lying will do nothing but destroy their lives. They'll have no meaningful relationships if they can't tell the truth. You know that, and guess what? You not only know that, you love them. Real love means we discipline. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He's comparing God to an earthly father. He said, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Notice what Paul says. This man is unrepentant, he's rebellious, he's sinful, and his sin is sexual. And by the way, did you notice that there's no mention of the stepmother in the punishment? You know why? Most scholars believe she wasn't a believer. I have no authority over non-believers, unbelievers. That's why you need to be careful about watching the news and spending all your time condemning lost people for acting lost. How else you expect them to act? Where would you be had you not been saved? I know I would not be where I am today had Christ not saved me. I know there are some things I'm not ever tempted to do, but there's a whole lot in this world that looks awful good even to a saved man. Were it not by God's grace, I don't know where I would be, but I probably wouldn't be happily married with a loving family and a wonderful church. And so the reality is, Paul's not taking aim at the lost. He's taking aim at the saved or the professing saved, and he's saying, you put them out. Now, how do you turn somebody over to Satan? Well, where does Satan rule? The Bible tells us he's the prince of this world. You want to know where Satan's ruling? Pull up your headlines. Think about the confusion and the lies and the deceit and the destruction that's going on today. But there's favor and protection over the church. Do you know what you have? You have a place to come weekly and hear the truth. You have people who love you in spite of your faults and worship the same Savior you do. If you fall and stumble, not in rebellion, not in a rebellious spirit, not in a spirit of unrepentance, but if you stumble, there's somebody in this room or somebody in your small group that's going to come to you and say, Hey, I love you. I got you. I'll pick you up. God will forgive you. He doesn't want that for your life. Don't go down that way again. Come back and let me love and encourage you. Think about David coming back in Psalm 51. Think about the prodigal son coming back and the father running to his arms. I run to the father only to find he's been running to me, wanting me to repent. This is a place of favor and protection, and we do enjoy a special measure of blessing according to God's Word. So when you are out of that fellowship, You're under the temporary rule of the evil one. And do you know what unrepentant sin always does? It always destroys your life. It always destroys your life. You know somebody today whose life trajectory is headed toward a graveyard if they don't turn. I have a family member I have had a conversation with in the last year, and I have said, I'm going to be called to do your funeral if you don't come back to the Lord. I said it in love, there was no air, there were tears in my eyes, but I believe with all my heart, if this individual does not turn and repent, his struggle will destroy him. And my hope and prayer in those moments is that even in the destruction, with a broken, shortened life, he would turn and profess Christ. And this is what Paul said. Turn them over to Satan. If they will not repent, that even as Satan and sin destroys their flesh, their soul may be saved. Timothy was told to do it this way in 1 Timothy. Holding faith and good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Paul says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You'll never read Paul or the Bible saying, hand them over to Satan that they may go to hell forever. I cannot believe in the hell of the Bible and want anybody to go there. But at some point, the church has to say, holiness matters. I told you it was a heavy message. I'll end with a lighter illustration. If you got enough sense or a lack of sense to get on an airplane these days the flight attendant you have to say flight attendant now because stewardess triggers people the flight attendant will tell you that spiel you don't listen to and invariably when they're doing that i'm watching the person on my right or my left in fact, a few times I've gotten fortunate enough or my assistant, who's wonderful, has gotten me on the emergency aisle. And they always say, are you willing to get off this plane and help people? I go, yeah, I'm willing for people to follow me right off this plane. I promise you I'll punch a hole. That's why I did not football. I'll punch a hole. You just follow me. But invariably, they always say, in the case of a sudden change in oxygen or air pressure in the cabin... A oxygen mask will fall from the ceiling. Now, I've never seen it. I hope it's there. And as soon as it falls, you put it on. Do not expect the bag to fully inflate. Oxygen will flow through the mask. And this happens from time to time. Then they always add this statement, and Tim Keller said this during COVID, and I'm giving him credit for it. What a great illustration. He said, they always say, in the event that there is a child or someone close to you in need of assistance putting on their mask. Put your mask on first and then help them. Now, mama, listen to me. That flies in the face of the maternal instinct. In fact, your right arm is a seatbelt. Your kid will be buckled up, it don't matter. They'll be 200 pounds and you have to stop quick, boom, you hit it right. It's that maternal instinct that my life doesn't matter, I'm going to protect my child's life. And in those moments, in panic, you might forget something. If you pass out from a lack of oxygen, you are no good for your kid. If that means your kid is scared and struggling to breathe for a matter of seconds, let them struggle and get your mask on, and then you'll be sustained to help them. When you hear a message about scandal and sexual sin in the church and the hard things of church discipline, you may be sitting out there saying, I'm never going to be in that room. I'm not a leader of this church. I'm not making those decisions. Others of you may say, well, I've never been victimized by that. Some of you may say, oh, that's in my past, but I've put it so far behind me that that I, I, I can't even imagine bringing it back up. So pastor, what do you want me to do? I can't fix evangelical churches I can't fix scandal I I can't even tell you that our church is immune we're most certainly not I want you to put your oxygen mask on first see your holiness and your wholeness is the greatest thing you could ever do for the purity and the holiness of our church God's not put you in charge of the sexual lives of everybody in this room but he has put you in charge, charge of yours And if you're a member of this church, you carry the witness of Christ with you. People know you're here. So you have to deal openly and honestly with where you are. For some of you, it is scars from being a survivor. For others of you, it may be the weight of unforgiveness from sexual sin in your life that is in your past, but you never dealt with redemptively. And for some of you today, it's the sexual sin in your current life. Somewhere around six out of 10 men who attend church admit to struggling with pornography. So when we begin to look into our own hearts and in our own lives, you say, well, is there any hope? Oh, yeah, there's hope. There are many people in this room who have been forgiven of sexual sin in their life. There are many people in this room who have dealt with and put behind them illicit relationships, adulterous affairs, an addiction to pornography. The first thing they had to do was recognize, I can't fix the church. I can't worry about my wife. I can't worry about my sons or my daughters. I can't worry about my dad or my mom. I got to put my oxygen mask on. I have got to turn and repent and to begin to walk according to God's word. And friend, the enemy wants you to think you can do that on your own. You cannot. So there's four ways to respond. One is at the altar. And let me just say, whenever I preach a message like this, one of the fears people have is, If I walk down to that altar, everybody's going to think I'm involved in some terrible, salacious sin. No, they're not. Let me tell you what they're going to think. They're going to think, I wish I had her courage or his courage. You may come down here, no struggle in your heart today, but to pray for someone in your life who's caught in a scandal, who's struggling with the wounds of sexual abuse. Whatever it is, there's this altar. Secondly, there's a prayer room. They're not only trained. They're trained to talk with you about sensitive, confidential matters of which you don't have to reveal everything today. You may walk in there with tears in your eyes and just say, I need somebody to pray with me. The third response is a biblical counseling ministry that is second to none. In fact, in preparation for this sermon, we put it in a prominent location on our site. If you go to our website and you look at the very top blue line and you click on it. When you click on it, what happens is it comes down and it simply says, fill out a brief form that's confidential. No one will see it. And it will start the process of one of our biblical counselors saying, let's sit down and talk together about whatever God's dealing with you in your life. And then the final response has nothing to do with the church, gathered. It's you saying. There's somebody I trust. There's somebody I believe in. There's somebody who's walked with the Lord. is filled with integrity. And I'm going to go to them this week. And I'm going to say, Pastor, opened up a can of difficult feelings for me. And I need to talk. I need some prayer. I need some confession. I need some help. You know who that person is. I don't have to know them. So four responses. Four ways. All of them look very much like that prodigal son who ran to the Father as the Father ran to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the women in this church who shared with me privately their story of abuse and victory, of forgiveness and hope. Thank you for the men in this church who were once Browsing pornographic websites on a daily basis that have now found hope and victory and consistency in their walk. Thank you for the young people who've broken up dating relationships that had become sexual and sinful and did not honor the Lord. Thank you for the married couples I know by name who were living together moved out, repented of their sin, stopped being intimate, did premarital counseling, and married together on your standard, and you've blessed them with hope and a foundation. And Lord, statistically, there are those in this room who've been on the other side. At a time in their life, perhaps when they were a person they didn't even recognize, They took something from somebody else. They hurt. They caused pain. And they're sitting out there listening to this prayer and they're wondering, I just don't like to think about it. Is there any hope for me? And I'm reminded of what you said to us through this text today. That even in the midst of terrible sin, the hope is always Repentance. There are men who were abusers and who are now kind, encouraging, faithful followers of Jesus because of your grace. There needs to be more of that. The Church family, I'm going to pray and when I say amen, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, run to the Father. If you want to come to this altar and be prayed over, our prayer team is always ready. If you want to make your way to the prayer room, if you want to Fill out an intake form online today or tomorrow. If you want to talk to a Christian brother or sister, here's what you can't do. Don't not do something. Put your mask on. Then you can help those around. Father, you move now as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.